you know, the Parks Department hasn't necessarily seen as, itself as a climate actor when climate action was just about emission stuff. Now, when we can say, actually, climate action locally, in fact, the only climate that we can really control locally is our local climate. And the fact that it's interesting is that we can actually have some effect on our local climate. We can cool it. We can cause it to cycle water and nutrients much more effectively. We can stabilize or buffer against some of these climate extremes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast, a place to explore the emerging technologies and the practitioners that are building greener, healthier, and smarter communities. I'm your host, Nadine Khala. In this season of the Internet of Nature podcast, we explore the future of urban forestry together with Planet Geo, a pioneering urban forest software and consulting company. I partnered with Planet Geo because they are at the forefront of trees and technology, helping communities around the world map a greener future. Together, we've chosen nine key topics facing the future of urban forestry. In today's episode, episode seven, we're diving into how we can align municipal climate change policy and urban forestry policy. On its face, there is a strategic connection between climate change and urban forestry initiatives in meeting both short-term sustainability goals and long-term success in urban forest planning. But even though wildly similar in their ambition at times, most city governments haven't connected the dots, at least not all the way. To help me address this, I've invited Brett Kincairn. Brett serves as the City of Boulder's uh, so in Colorado, Senior Policy Advisor for Climate Action, and he leads the city's Natural Climate Solutions team. He is also the director of the Center for Regenerative Solutions, a national initiative to expand natural climate solutions nationally that is co-sponsored by the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. Brett's primary responsibility is the ongoing evolution of the City of Boulder's climate action initiatives. Over the past two years, Brett has coordinated cross-department and multi-stakeholder initiatives in soil regeneration and sequestration research on agricultural lands and an urban forestry expansion campaign at the local, regional, and national levels. My conversation with Brett delves into what climate change policy has gotten wrong so far, and how can we harness the rapidly growing interest in natural climate solutions to bolster, specifically, urban forestry initiatives? It's a fascinating conversation, and I have to say, Brett is one heck of a speaker, so I think you're going to enjoy this one. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Brett. Hi there, Brett. Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast. Well, hello there. It's very nice to be with you. Thank you for coming on. So I think it would probably, you have a very unique role within the city of Boulder. So I think before we get into that and, and what that means for your work today, who is Brett and why does he do the work that he does today? Well, I I uh, live in Boulder, Colorado, which um, most, I think, um, many people consider to be this kind of um, Mecca of some sort, but I grew up north of here in Wyoming and we didn't actually have a very high opinion of 
Boulder or Coloradans in general. Is that right? We, yeah, we Wyomingites feel themselves to be like the true Westerners, and the, sure. the Colorado people are just a bunch of John Denver followers or something. So yeah, so I I've been in in sort of a land based uh, situation most of my life. My father was a, a fisheries biologist for the game and fish in Wyoming. And so I spent a lot of time back in the time when you could go along with your dad on his job. So I spent a lot of time in the rivers and lakes and backcountry of Wyoming, looking at fishing habitat and things. So I've always had this sense of really wanting to continue to be connected to the larger living world. And then a uh, number of years ago was a part of the early days of sustainable forestry I had been involved in sustainable ag. And we took the the principles of how you might think of a market-based framework for supporting <clears throat> sustainability. And we took it from ag into forestry and we launched the first certification program for sustainable forestry and forest products up in the Northwest. And that actually ultimately ended up working with other organizations around the world. We created the Forest Stewardship Council. So I had that background of working on forestry issues for many years. And then actually had a the privilege of starting to work with tribes for quite a while, spent a long time working with the Navajo communities um, in New Mexico and in Arizona, and then um, ended up feeling like it was time to finally settle down, um, met a girl who was from Boulder and wasn't going to go anywhere else. And I decided, well, that's not a bad place to land. So um, so that's yeah. what got you amongst the John Denders after all. Yeah, you know, reluctantly, but uh, it's not such a bad thing. Oh, good, good. And then that, uh, how did that, so did you immediately start working for the city of, of Boulder when that, when that move happened or did that, was that, did that happen later? Well, not quite. I, I've been sort of a serial social venture entrepreneur, if you will. I've started three or four nonprofits and a couple of kind of green business types of things. And, and, uh, but then, you know, when you get married and you actually have your first kid, you realize health insurance is a good thing. <laughs> Having some sense of like where you might be able to get any retirement savings together. Cause mm -hmm. I had spent 40 years doing other things. And so, but I actually happened to be just super fortunate. It was the only time that I'd ever used my master's degree, which I got in community regional planning, which was a prerequisite to apply for this planning uh, department job that was right. to help city write its next generation of climate action plan. So it was 2013 and the um, almost all these cities who had been part of this whole movement of cities that had signed on to the Kyoto goals, their plans all were expiring. And so there was this whole generation of plans that had to be updated. And I was brought on to the city of Boulder to help write that new plan. It was supposed to be just a six month gig. And then I was going to go on to do some environmental planning with them. And of course, it took us three and a half years to finally get the plan out the door because the science kept changing like the the whole framework of what the goal the plans had to accomplish really changed dramatically but that was also you know in the <clears throat> in the era the the whole first generation of this climate action movement from especially the city's perspective was almost entirely focused on emissions management through changing energy systems and so i spent 8 plus years really in the midst of how you change utilities to be focusing on renewable energy, how you do electrification and those kinds of things. But when we wrote the, that, that plan, we started to try to create a placeholder in that climate action plan for the city, that there were other things that were also critical for climate stabilization. One of them being working with the larger living world, like ecosystems are a really important part of that. We couldn't quantify it that closely, but we knew that there had to be a placeholder for that. We published that plan in 2016 
actually in 2017, one of the landmark uh, studies came out called Natural Climate Solutions. It was the first international assessment of the potentials for living systems sequestering carbon. And then in 2018, actually, the IPCC came out with its next um, major assessment. And it, one of the things that that assessment said, which really turned the whole climate field on its head, was uh, you know, we told you in 2014 that you're going to have to hit 80% emissions reduction by 2050 to stabilize climate. Well, unfortunately, you still have to hit 80% emissions reduction, but it's probably going to have to be more like 2035. And by the way, that isn't even going to be enough because we've released so much carbon into the atmosphere that now we have to bring a whole bunch of carbon back down out. And then they came out the year later with this landmark analysis called Climate Change in Land, which said the only way we actually know how to do that in any scale anytime soon is working with natural systems. Right. So that really still started to kickstart this new focus area of what was then called natural climate solutions. And some people still call it that. But that that framing, natural climate solutions, was still really based on a kind of reductionist view of the living world as just another form of a carbon sucking machine that we needed to sort of augment. And I think what's really emerged over the last few years, and one of the reasons why we now call our work nature-based climate solutions, is because really there's a whole much broader set of of values and and benefits of working with living systems that we need to maximize and 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 optimize for like creating more shade like creating more water absorption like kickstarting evapotranspirative cooling cycles that isn't just about sequestering carbon so that's the the work that i've been doing over the last several years has really been pivoting into this realm of what we call nature based solutions now and I'm excited to say that, you know, after years of trying to really argue for the val validity of this, we finally kind of won the day, at least in terms of our local city organization and our climate team endorsed the creation of a new team within our organization called the Nature-Based Solutions Team. And so we, for the first time this, this past year, we stood up this new team. And simultaneous to that, we were actually were having this conversation in a broader network of cities and counties across the country in the form of the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. This is a network of about 230 or 40 cities and counties from all over North America who've been working for over a decade on a whole bunch of different approaches to sustainability and climate. And we were having this conversation in that group too, which had been in its climate work almost entirely energy systems focused about this whole new realm. And what I'm glad to report is that over the last two or three years, we've built up a network of over 100 cities and, counties, cities and counties around the country that are actively now developing these kind of nature-based climate solutions efforts. Right, right. And I think you touch upon um, something that was missing, obviously, in climate change policy for so long. And that's something that we've been seen changing in the mainstream, where it's now even in mainstream media, we no longer talk about just reducing emissions, but we talk a lot more about nature-based solutions and what that could mean. It's still, it's still relatively new, but obviously it is taking off. I mean, one of the things that excites me the most about nature-based solutions is the fact, as you mentioned, that it's much more than just sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. And I can imagine that because it has all these other co-benefits, you're able to get a lot more community buy-in because not everyone's going to be necessarily on board or perhaps have a lot of feeling behind, you know, well, you know, okay, well, if we just look at a tree as a, as a carbon sucking machine, what does that really mean for me and my life and my family's life here in front of my house? But if we can talk about all of these other co-benefits, it might get a lot of community buy-in, or at least that's my assumption. Is that something that you've seen? Yeah, I, I see a lot of things I mean, around this topic. 
one of the things that we know in the climate movement is that we've done an absolutely terrible job of framing the issue. Mm. You know, this whole several decades of work where our primary focus was on trying to do less of things, especially less of something that you can't even apprehend with your senses, greenhouse gases. I mean, what a terrible way to try to focus people's attention. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. It has no direct connection to your daily experience. But, but it will have devastating consequences. Right. Devastating right. consequences. And you got to do a lot less of it. And oh, by the way, the things that'll do a lot less of it are really expensive. You got to buy an electric car. You got to put solar panels on your house. You got to put a whole new appliances in. It's just like, wow. All of that doused in a lot of shame on you, shame on you for just leading your life. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. And so I think one of the things that we've tried to do at the outset of launching this whole new area of climate action is to reframe it around things that are in the direct experience of the people we're trying to engage. And so, Mm -hmm. in fact, just coincidentally, as you can see, I'm wearing the hat for this, this campaign that we've created in our community called Cool Boulder. Cool, I see it. Yeah. And so, you know, and it's kind of a double entendre, of course, you know, it, it, but it, it, but it is about the fact that we need to create cooler communities. Um, and so what are the things that we can do that accomplish that objective? And one of the, you know, the first areas of major action is around a natural cooling campaign built around urban forestry. Although I would say, I mean, even in the way that we think about urban forestry, when we just take trees and we plant them in this very isolated kind of way in some sort of little environment and expect them to thrive, we have often forgotten that trees live within communities too, that not just of other trees, but of a whole other host of other um, plants and shrubs and organizations and, and organisms that are all exchanging and working together around things. And so we're we're working in our urban forestry campaign to really look at that as a, a proxy for how we plant ecosystems in our mm. community in ways that can bring not just cooling but a whole bunch of other um, other values. I mean, for one thing, just you know, people think that the value of a tree in heat is just the shade that it provides, but in fact, actually, probably the majority of its its contribution to cooling is in the transportive cycle that it's supporting. That transpiration of moisture is actually transferring a huge amount of heat up into the atmosphere. They say that every tree, every mature tree is something like two or three air conditioners worth of, of cooling that's operating, you know, during the, every day that the sun is shining. So there's, and part of what I'm getting at is just that there's there's a whole host of these ways that living systems are critical to our well-being and to the stabilization of climate that we haven't even recognized yet. Just we, you know, the climate modeling, for example, has been almost entirely based on this notion that the atmosphere was basically a geochemical machine driven simply by a CO2 in, CO2 out equation. And in fact, it's actually not, it's not at all that simple. And that one of the biggest forces that that affects whether the globe is cooling or not is the water cycles. I mean, 60% of greenhouse gases is water. Now, they don't have the same residence time as carbon dioxide, but the fact that we have been evaporating a whole bunch more water way up into the atmosphere is a big part of why we're heating up so fast. So, and, you know, one of the, the, one of the, to say one of the consequences yeah. of that is we have been dehydrating landscapes and we have been decarbonizing landscapes 
over a third of the excess carbon in the atmosphere now is not from burning fossil fuels. It's actually from land degradation. It's from the way we practice agriculture. It's from deforestation. It's from other forms of land degradation associated with development. That's, that's contributed at least a third and maybe more of, of what's causing global warming. And, and the consequence of that is that if we really want to stabilize climate, a much, much larger focus of our work has to be land regeneration, not just energy systems change. I mean, one of the things that shocked me when I, when I actually finally learned this is our planet, the Earth, is operating right now at something like 50% of the photosynthetic capability that it had maybe just a thousand years ago. And so it's absolutely remarkable that the atmosphere is as stable as it is, even though it's going into much greater instability, because of how, how much we have diminished the capacity of, of climate stabilization that living systems otherwise provide. And so I, I think one of the take-home messages to, to me and for me is, we're not going to stabilize climate because some of a few num a few really rich people put forward lots of money and they build carbon sucking machines. I think that's actually a preposterous proposal anyway. It mostly has no chance of solution in the near future. What's going to work is if we put trillions of those same trillions of dollars that they're asking for in the hands of hundreds of millions of people out there reforesting and revegetating and stewarding land in ways that start to bring the carbon and the water back into stable cycles. So, so the work that we're doing in Boulder, yeah, we're not necessarily operating yet at the scale of hundreds of thousands to millions of hectares, but we're trying to pilot work that has relevance to that kind of scaling of land regeneration in both an urban and a natural and working lands context. So yeah, that, just, you know, should say, go ahead, I'm, I'm keep interrupting you. No, 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 please go ahead. This is fascinating. I'm writing my, down my questions as we go. So please finish your thought. Well, so so Cool Boulder um, actually has three broad nature-based solutions areas that we're focusing on. And in fact, if, you know, coolboulder.org is the website. I, I'd encourage people to go there because it's actually intentionally designed around a few things. Like the, you'll see that in, even in the art and the, and the color palettes that we're using, we're trying to remind people and appeal to that sense of a, a populist movement because this is, has to be something that we all do together. Mm -hmm. And then we say, well, there's there's three or so major areas in our community that we think we can focus on. Urban forests, which we're calling connected canopies. Another is around what we call pollinator pathways, but this is really about how we build biodiversity corridors that are bringing and supporting that life that's necessary to help you know maintain these systems. And the third is what we call absorbent landscapes. And this is this notion that we need to be stewarding living systems to reabsorb three things. Carbon is one, but actually it's almost the sort of byproduct. Water is the leading one. In fact, I would argue that carbon is a lagging indicator. Water is a leading indicator. If we really want to manage landscapes, not only for it, their, their climate buffering capabilities, but all for the other things that we need, water is the indicator we need to be watching and how we're maintaining that moisture reservoir in, in landscapes. But then the third is energy. Again, these systems absorb huge amounts of energy. If the, the amount of of reflective energy difference between an area that's just bare, flat, you know, hard packed or paved versus an area that is vegetated is massive. And, the, and we forget that we have created that scale of difference across the globe. 
So then in the absorbent landscapes context, not only are we working in the urban context of how do we use biochar to increase water holding in turf areas, but we're also looking at natural and working lands. Like how do we, how do we support the rehydration of these natural and working land settings? Because so many of them have been either grazed very heavily or they've been their their hydrological cycles have been disrupted. And even relatively small, simple um, actions like building these kind of hand-built rock water slowing structures can start to actually rehydrate these landscapes in which in ways that they just kickstart again all these different pieces the biodiversity cycles the water cycles etc so one of the things that as you started explaining what cool boulder is cool boulder is trying to do is using that lens of nature-based solutions so the, the first thing that i think goes through a lot of people's minds is like Oh, great. Here we go. Another municipality that wants to plant, insert ridiculous high number of trees. And I think that's where a lot of this has gone wrong, where a lot of this focus has been on carbon. Ergo, we must plant more trees to soak up more carbon. And really what you're describing is three distinct pathways. So this urban forestry lens, building up absorbent landscapes, as well as um, pollinator and wildlife connect corridors. Did I summarize those correctly? Those three? Yeah, that's right. So how this feels like a much more a much more practical and well thought out and and three pathways that are actually going to lead to a lot of the outcomes that we want to get to versus if we just say that every municipality should plant a million trees where again we're talking about these single individual stems that have no uh, they're really not even part of a community as you mentioned how scalable are these three different pathways to other cities outside of Boulder? Is this kind of a, a, a blueprint or a green print, if you will, that other cities could be following? We believe so. Um, one of the, I'd comment on a couple of things. So the, one of the things that we have tried to acknowledge in Boulder is that we are a city of, of um, disproportionate privilege in terms of the resources that we have, um, the wealth in our community, um, the kinds of just good governance capacities that we have because we have a well-funded local government. And that a couple of two or three years ago, we, we really started to recognize that in our climate work, which in many cities has been very sort of city-centric, like we set these climate goals for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the whole theory of change has been like, oh, if Boulder can achieve net zero by 2030, then somehow other communities can do it. So we've shown that it's possible and that's what's going to lead to change. Well, there's a lot of barriers that a lot of other communities have that it's not going to be as, as easy for them as it would be for us. Not to say that it is easy. And mm -hmm. part of it was also to recognize that, so that theory, we don't necessarily believe in that theory of change anymore. And the other thing we started to realize is that we don't actually have the levers of control to change certain things like regional transportation infrastructure or the the carbon um, factor for our local utility those things have to be changed at larger scales and so that's one of the reasons why we've been very active in both regional state regional and national consortiums to try to push for those larger changes so we were I was, i've been really privileged in that our community recognized the value of trying to promote and support nature-based solutions more beyond our own boundaries and so we partnered with the Urban Sustainability Directors Network to create a new entity called the Center for Regenerative Solutions that is actually working with cities and counties across the country. 
And in fact, this in March 30th, we're launching the first um, sequence in what we're calling an urban nature-based climate solutions accelerator. And the mm -hmm. first sequence is going to focus on the intersection between urban heat and urban forestry. And there's going to be five modules each a month in duration in which we're bringing in some of the best folks we can find around urban heat modeling and management, urban forestry management, equity-centered community engagement, equity-centered workforce development, um, leading-edge codes and policies. Because we know that unless we can support and encourage and enable a lot of other places to move in the same direction, then just because Boulder accomplishes it, we, we'll, we'll make a better community for our community members, but we won't accomplish our climate objectives. Hey, everybody. Thanks again to this season's sponsor, Planet Geo. Planet Geo has a suite of software and services all designed to shift the urban forestry conversation from hypothetical to reality. See the link in the show notes to learn more. And now, back to the show. As you've as you've been doing this work, is there a lot of convincing that you still need to do? Whether that be to to constituents, citizens, uh, other politicians, other departments within the municipality, do you find yourself having to do a lot of persuasion? Well, one of the things that's somewhat unique about the nature-based solutions space is that, or that's different than the period of time in which climate action was almost exclusively focused on energy systems. Yeah. Was that that period of that work and that period of time was one in which there wasn't really any other city department that was doing energy systems work in a community. And so mm -hmm. there wasn't like you were treading on any other department's territory. Yeah. And so lots of cities formed these climate teams that were fundamentally kind of operating slightly, largely independently working on this energy systems. And it would have some effect, like you'd go to departments in your organization and say, hey, can we look at your emissions factors and can we help you change that and so on. But, but the minute you enter into the nature-based solutions space, then suddenly you're in somebody else's territory. You're in the parks department's territory. You're in the agriculture department's territory. You're in the open space group's territory. Public so it's health. Really, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's really, it's really, it compels us to to exercise or engage in a kind of multi-stakeholder, multi-sectoral uh, approach. Mm. And I think that's 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 something that many cities are just starting to try to figure out. Like, how do I bring all these different departments together and work on that? Because, you know, the Parks Department hasn't necessarily seen as, itself as a climate actor when climate action was just about emission stuff. Now we can say, actually, you know, climate action locally. In fact, the only climate that we can really control locally is our local climate. And the fact that it's interesting is that we can actually have some effect on our local climate. We can cool it. We can cause it to cycle water and nutrients much more effectively. We can stabilize or buffer against some of these climate extremes. And so in a certain way, especially to the other thing that's been happening at the local jurisdiction level is that, especially over the last couple of years, climate change is not an abstract notion about whether it will or won't happen. It's happening mm -hmm. and it's having a big impact. And so even in places that have been historically big players in the sort of conventional climate action as carbon management space, you're, we're having to think about prioritizing our resources differently because now we have to prepare to 
to encounter and live through all these changes. And the thing that's kind of cool about nature-based solutions is that it can actually do both. It has a kind of climate stabilization aspect, but it definitely has a climate adaptation and resilience aspect. I think that's precisely what makes this field so exciting. And I think importantly, a lot less polarizing, politically speaking, than climate change policy has in the past. Is that something that you've seen? Well, yes, um, but because in part, we haven't really been willing to come face to face with this underlying reality that at the bottom of it is the fact that human beings have been degrading the living systems on the planet at such a extent and now pace that it's now finally coming back to, to really get us. Mm-hmm. And that that means that we are going to have to seriously rethink how we do agriculture. It means we're going to have to seriously rethink whether we're going to allow forests to be cut down or what the consequences of that will be. It means that we're going to have to really reconsider how urban areas do land development and that just putting in a few more parks isn't necessarily going to be the solution to what we need to maintain in terms of living infrastructure to be able to live through what we're living through. So um, I, I think it's interesting. I think that the beginning, the, the, the first stages of climate change started when human beings started degrading landscape at larger scales. And that includes, by the way, the displacement of indigenous and local cultures that actually knew how to manage those landscapes for integrity. Mm-hmm. And so we have so much work to do in terms of land regeneration that I think that that part of it hasn't been fully acknowledged. The flip side of that is I really do see this kind of amazing upwelling of longing and desire on the part of not just our community, but many around that I see for people wanting to connect to the living world mm-hmm. and feeling like, is there something that I could do that has a healthful, positive, beneficial uh, impact. And the cool thing about nature-based solutions as climate action is that even if you have a little backyard patio, you can start. You don't have to have a roof that you can put solar on. You don't have to have enough money to buy an electric car. And that our job now is to show how that each of those actions and help make sure each of those actions is integrating towards a larger whole. Yeah, and I think that speaks exactly to the point that we started the conversation off with, that the problem about having this big publicity campaign around greenhouse gas emissions is that it was so difficult for people to grasp, even if you really, really wanted to, versus being more connected with the living systems, being more connected to the nature where you live is is a uniquely um, and intrinsically human desire and want and it's it's something that 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 quite literally can feed your soul if you're able to facilitate that and foster that so it's so much it's so much deeper than putting solar panels on your on your roof and lowering your energy bill it's 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 something much much deeper and i think and i think that's kind of what i was trying to get at that it, it speaks to something that um previous climate change discussions policies debates haven't been able to get at yet yeah, I, I agree. I, I do think that, again, we we have to, I don't want to diminish the sort of initial stage of enthusiasm and excitement about nature-based solutions and the way that it invites people in. Mm-hmm. But I do think we ought to be um, honest about 
what the real long game well what the long game has to be if we want this to be a transformational approach and that fundamentally involves the fact that we have to change the economy to value land degradation recovery land regeneration and ultimately land stewardship for these ecosystem services in ways that it doesn't now i'll just use a an illustration like yeah. when you have a, a city that might have um i don't know five or ten urban forestry staff on staff when in fact it was a city at one time that had a hundred urban forestry staff you have to wonder can those five people really maintain that ecosystem in ways that are sufficient to have it provide all the things we need. So Milwaukee, Milwaukee has a hundred trained arborists on staff and they, they maintain a remarkable urban forest as a consequence. Wow. I Cleveland, didn't know that. Who I know and love. Yeah, I know. Amazing. Right. Cleveland Incredible. who I know and love and we work very closely with at the turn of the century, they had several hundred people on their urban forestry staff in the like early 1900s. Why? Because their urban forest was their air conditioning system. But how many do they have now? I don't know. It's maybe a couple of dozen or even less. You can't maintain these living systems in the ways that we need to unless we value and provide living wage work for folks. And that's going to mean fundamentally restructuring what the economy values. And that's going to be a policy debate. And unless we really recognize that it's not just a feel good thing, it's literally life support systems that we're not adequately maintaining right now. No, precisely. What to 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 zoom into that a little bit more, because um, I know we talked about changing the economy in terms of how it works in terms of forestry and agriculture and, and large of the the larger um, or more of the the larger land uses that we're familiar with. But diving, considering the urban focus of of this conversation that I want to have. What does that look like on a land development scale? So you mentioned a little bit what people could be doing in their backyards, but what what does that look like on the urban scale? How can we how we can how can we go back to nature in the modern age? Well, <clears throat> nature is around us all the time, um, and so in part it's about first of all starting to work on protecting the nature we have left. Mm-hmm. And then the second part, and if we're thinking about in the case of urban forestry, assessing where it's possible to begin reintroducing that living infrastructure um, and supporting it. Because, I mean, the other thing is, I it really disturbs me when we hear things like, um, you know, just tree planting campaigns in general, or the notion of tree equity, as some people have been promoting it. As if somehow, because we know that, you know, the the lack of tree canopy follows closely redlined communities, and that, of course, communities of color and historically underserved communities typically would be undershaded and so on, that somehow if we just go plant trees in those neighborhoods, then we will have somehow satisfied our equity obligations. When, in fact, really, when we plant trees in an underserved community, we've just given them a liability that they have to keep alive for 20 to 30 years before it starts to deliver any of those benefits that we say they need. And so we really have to rethink what does it mean to actually uh, create a strategy that creates equitable access to living infrastructure? And I think the biggest and most important equity opportunity that we could provide in that context is making sure that A, we scope the full extent of living infrastructure that we have to redeploy. I mean, just planting a few trees is not gonna be nearly enough. There's a whole bunch more trees that we need to plant than we usually recognize. 
there's a whole bunch of, that means a whole lot more maintenance that we're going to have to do for a long time before they're really ready. And then there's other green infrastructure. In fact, in Europe, they don't separate urban forests and green infrastructure like we do in the United States. We just, they see that all as, but what we're doing in Cleveland right now is to try to assess in an, in a historically underserved black community, what does it take to actually create, to reach the state in which the living infrastructure of that neighborhood is sufficient to protect that community? How many trees planted where, over what period of time, what green infrastructure in what locations of what sort? And then what are the, the workforce needs to be able to both install and maintain that? Nobody's ever tried to look at that full picture of what that, that that economy needs to be and then people would say well you you might as well not do that because it's going to be way more money than we would ever invest in those communities and my argument is no that's exactly why we do need to figure out because if we don't restructure the economy to figure out a way to support that then we will continue to have people who are at immense risk and are suffering many of these kinds of catastrophes that are you know terrible in terms of loss of life and property and so on yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what's the point in saying, oh, well, we can't afford that? I mean, how about we how about we figured out what the price tag is first before we write it off completely? Um, well, and especially when you look at where our subsidies currently go. You know, sure. in fact, there's a great report that came out from the UN Environment Program, which I would strongly encourage people to look at. It's called Nature-Based Solutions, Opportunities and Challenges for Scaling Up. And one of the great that. things about yeah, so uh, we you can put it in the show notes or something, but mm -hmm. so nature-based solutions, opportunities, and challenges for scaling up. It it um it actually for one thing it actually provides the definition of nature-based solutions, which has worked its way through and is now established in the UN. So that's actually really useful. We now have an established internationally recognized definition, and then it lays out a whole series of core steps towards moving that into scale up. But one of the things it points out is that. If you just redirected all the subsidies that we currently send to energy develop, like fossil energy development and industrial agriculture, that probably would get you a very long ways in terms of the kinds of investments that we need to make in people and communities to implement this kind of work. So you highlighted an initial point. It, it kind of again this three-step, um, the three-step program that we could be taking in terms of first laying out what it is that we need to protect, laying out what needs to happen specifically, the where and the what and the how, and then the whole labor portion of it. If I did I summarize that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if we look at those three uh, kind of steps that you need to take, what kind of tools um, or technologies are you guys using to do that work? Because I can imagine that is a, a lot of information to try and wrap one's head around. Yeah, well, one of the places that we're starting is with the risk, with the climate risk, and then the potential solution. So we're, we're launching this, you know, this sequence around urban heat and urban forestry. And in, in that sequence, one of the things that we're doing is looking at the best available tools for heat um, mapping and management. So mm -hmm. that's one set of systems that communities are going to need to be able to assess what their risk is and how that's going to change and how to manage it. And then looking at the next the 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 next generation of urban forestry tools, things like the Planet Geo um, data sets that we can now get every two years, which is so important. Like urban forestry has existed in a kind of slow change context for so long that it's just accustomed like, oh, we'll do an update on urban forest plan maybe every 10 years. 
We'll get maybe we'll get a lidar data flyover at that point. We'll look at change across maybe a ten-year uh, window. And in fact, change is happening so fast now that just by the time you would get a new set of data, it's almost pointless. Yeah. So this notion of fast change data systems like Planet Geos, along with canopy analysis tools coupled to heat management tools, start to really tell us um, where do we have those challenges and how much of that can we address through this nature-based approach. And then I think that the second step is how do we direct the economic opportunities that are created or that need to be created to implement that into those communities that are most historically at risk and underserved. And that's where amazing work like um, PowerCore Philly and others where they've been doing um, tremendous work around equity-centered workforce development. Um, that's another group that's actually gonna be in the accelerator and providing training around equity-centered workforce development. And then how do we work with the communities who are at risk so that they are a part of that planning process? You know, most. Kate Mingoya from Groundworks tells this amazing story about she lived in the Bronx at this one point. It was during Mayor Bloomberg's Million Tree Initiative. And she said she walked out of her door one day and out on her street that was just suddenly planted with all these trees in this urban neighborhood. And she went to work and she came back. And by the time she came back that 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 next day, all those trees were cut down and thrown in the street. And so she went to this old woman who was kind of the person who watched over the neighborhood. And she said, like, what happened? And the old woman said something like, nobody asked us if we wanted trees. You know, and so there's this sense of we have to also learn new ways of engaging communities that we think are at risk or in need or what have you. So I think we need these pilot projects. That's one of the reasons why we're working really closely with a bunch of groups in Cleveland, because we think that they're very well positioned to try this out. I think there's amazing work going on in Austin and Sacramento. I, part of this is how do we start sharing the lessons that are being learned as we try to take a new approach to this um, urban forestry and other nature-based solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And that touches on a really important point as well that that's been coming across more and more throughout the podcast is that I think for a long time, urban foresters. So right, we've talked a lot about, you know, kind of what climate change policy might have gotten wrong in the past, but also urban forestry, urban foresters and urban forestry policy, I think has fallen victim to at times looking at open space, looking at a, a grass field, looking at a brown field and thinking, aha, perfect, a blank canvas for me to go and plant my trees without mm -hmm. so much as a thought or a care to who actually might already be using that space, both humans and non-humans alike. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brett, one of the um one of the last questions that I wanted to ask you is um this idea of well, there's a couple. I'll leave it at one. Um if you could go back. You know, let's say to 2016 when that very first report came out, and there was something that you know you 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 wish you could you could do over again, or perhaps something that didn't go your way, or a challenge that you're that you came up against. What what would that be? I don't know that I can look back and see some major mistake or or deficiency. I mean, we make mistakes all the time, obviously. Um, and we're trying to learn from every one. And but I I think what's one of the things that Kim Stanley Robinson says, the guy who wrote Ministry for the Future, which if people haven't read that book, it's 
it's a hard read because of you know it's he's a science fiction writer who takes i think one of the most authentic um shots at saying like what would the future look like in which human beings actually take climate change seriously and try to do something about it and it's not because there's some big kumbaya moment and everybody gets together and does something it's because there's this kind of really haphazard um sort of lurching emergent set of realizations and actions that are happening in all these different ways and i think that's just how we it's it is we're we're in an emergent process that's going to have both immense challenge struggle and suffering and like remarkable breakthroughs because the system we live in which you know the my argument would be maybe this would be it we have been propagating this misconception, this delusion that we that we could make things sustainable. And of course, this was always a kind of very elitist notion because it was the people who basically lived in developing uh, developed worlds settings that were relatively comfortable who had the privilege to talk about sustainability because we'd offshored most of the impacts of the society and the economy that we created. And now it's coming home to roost. Like the system that we've been living in for 30 years was never sustainable. Um, it, and in fact, the Club of Rome, you know, the limits to growth report that came out in 72 said that. And it was buried by a whole bunch of interests that didn't really want to call into question the sort of growth based economy model. But here we are. That's how it is. And and so for a long time, this system was impervious to change. And there wasn't like I've been an organizer for 40 years and it's been very frustrating to see how little change we've been able to create. And it's because the system wasn't really ready to change. But the system is now ready for the system is changing now. And that means it's going to be really hard because systems usually don't change in a sort of gradual, easy, smooth way. But I do think that it means that this is the time where real change is going to happen. And so the question is, can, can we create pathways towards constructive change? Because there are going to be a lot of pathways that lead to destructive change. We saw that pretty clearly in our political cycle recently. So yeah, I, I think that the, we just have to be scrambling as quickly as we quickly as we can to create these constructive pathways and have them ready to scale quickly because um, there's a lot of change coming. So on that note, people can get inspired by going to the Cool Boulder website, which you mentioned earlier. Are there any other resources that you'd like to point people towards? Yeah, I'd love to invite folks to go to the Center for Regenerative Solutions website, which is naturebasedclimate.solutions. And um, so there's lots of resources there. We we from we did a whole series of work around biochar. There's a re, the the work we did around a regional urban forestry expansion strategy for the Front Range of Colorado. The urban accelerator that we're involved in is there, and you can sign up to be a part of that process, and just a whole bunch of other resources. Brilliant. And if people want to connect with you online, where would be the best place to do that? Uh, well, I, I'm terrible at responding to email. I'll just warn people now, as we all know. Don't contact Brett. <laughs> yeah, um, but through the actually through the Center for Regenerative Solutions is the, the easiest way to reach me. Great. Awesome. And then, uh, Brett, I will leave you with the last question that I ask all of my guests who come on the show. And that is, what does the Internet of Nature mean to you? I uh, I think as a person who spends um, eight plus hours a day in, in a two-dimensional environment that's basically dominated by the internet, the the association of internet and nature don't don't sit uh, easily together in my mind. But I would say that one of the remarkable um, opportunities that the internet represents is that I get a chance to connect to people from all over the world 
who are doing this remarkable work and be inspired and and learning. So I I just I just hope that in the end of the day, what we don't forget is it's not what we're going to learn together through this two dimensional digital space that matters. It's, it matters what we then walk out the door and do with that information in a direct relationship with the larger living world that's waiting for us to come out there and help. Absolutely. And that's also why I've shied away from doing a full video podcast other than the social media clips and focus on doing a well-produced audio podcast so that people can listen to this while they're out there doing the work. Fantastic. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Hey, Brett, this was um, super, super interesting. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for your work, Medina. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. Want to learn more about the Internet of Nature? Subscribe to my newsletter at nadinahalla.com. I'm looking forward to bringing you another great guest next week. As always, remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review if you learned something new. The best way to support us is to share this episode with a friend or colleague. Season 5 of the Internet of Nature podcast on the future of urban forestry is brought to you by Planet Geo. See you next week.